Every season is spooky season in our book. So settle in and prepare to be shook. You are listening to Shook, a comedic podcast about all things paranormal and unexplained. I'm Santa. Hey friends, I'm Amanda. And Santa, do you have a fun fact this week? I actually do have a pretty decent fun fact. On Saturday night, Saturday, May the 6th, I went to see the Eras Tour, which is Taylor Swift's current tour, and it was like the best night of my life, (laughs) and I don't have a whole lot of words, but yeah, it was one of the greatest experiences ever, and probably the best concert experience I will ever have. Uh, TBH and I'm okay with that um and if (laughs) I just want to say if you like not sponsored but if you get the chance to attend like if you get the chance to get tickets and attend do it because it really is worth it to see like a performer of this caliber perform for three hours three hours yeah Wow. When I tell you it's the Eras Tour, she <laughs> she goes through every era, which is every album that she has ever released. And she's giving us songs from every single album. The only album that she doesn't highlight is her first album, but she has two surprise songs every stop on the tour mm-hmm. that she does acoustic. And she's been playing a lot of songs from the first album acoustically. So she's highlighting like her entire body of work across this tour. And it's extremely impressive to see. And last night was her last night in Nashville. And mm-hmm. it was a, it was an insane storm last night. Like it was pouring and thundering and lightning and People thought she was going to have to cancel. But one thing about Taylor, she loves a rain show. So she postponed until 930 and she went on and she played while getting just rained on the whole time. And this wasn't just like sprinkling. This girl was getting drenched. She was probably going through it, but she didn't show it at all. And she made it through the entire show. And additional fun fact, I could hear it from my house. Oh my gosh. So I slick got a second experience <laughs> from seeing it on Saturday night. So like hashtag blessed. Yeah. And can we talk about how uh, gorgeous you looked also? She had this really, Santa wore this beautiful sequined dress and it was a moment. She was living her own era, dare I say. <laughs> it was definitely interesting to be wearing like such a shiny, sparkly colorful dress because mm-hmm. I usually wear black. Do you have any fun facts? Because I could really talk <laughs> about the Eras tour for the whole episode. Well, <laughs> it's funny you should ask. Um, my fun fact is the antithesis of what happened to you this weekend. On Saturday, May the 6th, you were living your best life. And on Saturday, May the 6th, I missed an opportunity to see my favorite band, Muse, at Shaky Knees Festival in Atlanta. Um, and I have no one to blame but myself. Well, one of Muse's, one of my favorite Muse lyrics is, don't waste your time or time will waste you. And you know what? Yeah. That's just my whole life right now. Basically, I have overcommitted myself to all the things and I might as well 
become an octopus because I have that many hands and that many different things. And, you know, it's it's just ENFP, ADHD, energy. It's fine. You're good at it, though. Like, you're, you <sighs> are, you've always been like that. Like, and you're ENFP, I'm INFP. Mm-hmm. And I think that may be where that differences because like I want to be like that so bad it's very taxing and I don't recommend it um but on the point of Myers-Briggs uh (laughs) I collect introverted friends apparently and when we were all at Stephanie's house for my birthday party it dawned on me oh shit I'm the one ENFP amongst literally three INFPs and if you don't know what Myers-Briggs is Michael Google it. It's fun. Find out what your type is and it will help you to understand why you are the way you are and why Mm -hmm. certain career paths are better for you than others and why certain things aren't your jam versus are your jam. So highly recommend that. (laughs) Um, Yes, they'll take you a quiz. One last fun fact. This is the actual fun fact. I did already announce this on Speak of the Devil's Winchester episode, but for those who do not follow me on the social media machine, my husband and I adopted a puppy. We named him Bowie after David Bowie, obviously. So now we have a third son who doesn't get along with the other two sons, and uh, this one happens to have uh some alliteration Bowie Bowen it sounds a little cheesy but here David Bowie you can't go wrong with David Bowie so Amanda Mm -hmm. what story has you shook this week Ooh, here we go okay the story that had me shook this week is about one of the most chilling stories of alien abduction in U.S. history And that story is the alien abduction of the horror author, Whitley Strieber. What? Yes. And Santa, after this one, I I don't think we're going to be asking the aliens to come and get us anymore. Oh, God. All right. Here we go. Whitley Strieber, a New York Times bestselling author of his autobiography titled Communion, as well as other nonfiction and fiction horror novels, is an alien abduction survivor. Whitley Strieber spent Christmas time 1985 in a secluded cabin in upstate New York with his beloved wife Anne and his then seven year old son. What started as a holiday getaway from the hustle and bustle of Manhattan ended in pure terror for Whitley Strieber. And I quote, they are here, is the beginning of the transcription of Whitley's alien abduction hypno-regression session, wherein Whitley recalls in vivid detail the extraordinarily traumatizing events that occurred that night. With that said, please consider this a blanket trigger warning for what's to come. Disturbing contents ahead, including, but not limited to, mentions of rape and bodily harm. As Whitley recalls what happened to him on that quiet, snowy evening, he continues in this hypnotized state, saying, quote, I hear him. He comes right in the door. He's wearing a face mask with two eye holes. He stands beside my bed and makes a gesture towards the door. And there's a hell of a lot of them. I'm scared as hell, just screaming and screaming. 
Whitley goes on to explain that after he notices that there are several aliens in his home, that he suddenly finds himself outstretched in the cold on his back porch. He's lying on this cot bed-like situation, simply frozen in fear. And before he can even register this, he is suddenly in the middle of a clearing in the woods, still strapped to this cot or whatever it is. If suddenly finding yourself in the middle of a freezing, cold, snow-covered field isn't terrifying enough, well, then he recalls that very abruptly, suddenly he's in the air. And he's blazing through the clouds into an unfamiliar room. And (laughs) this is actually probably my only opportunity for some comedic relief in the whole story, so I'm just going to go with it. He describes this mysterious room as smelling like cheese. So this is where I have some real questions, okay? (laughs) What kind of cheese does it smell like? Because there's Mm, a significant mm, difference. mm, mm. (laughs) There's a significant difference in funk between something like Gouda or Havarti as opposed to Gorgonzola, for example. My least fave. Um, If it smells like Gorgonzola or, heaven forbid, blue cheese, that right there would be enough for me to want to end it all. And the reason I say that I would end it all is because, like, in that point, not only have you clearly been abducted by aliens, no questions asked, but you also have the misfortune of having your nostrils assaulted by Mm -hmm. stinky, stinky cheese. Yeah, no thanks. In two ways. So Whitley continues in this hypno-regression. He says, and I quote, it smells kind of shitty in here, to tell you the truth. It's not clean here. So at this point in the story, what I need to know is... Are the aliens, like, coming to invade us because they need cleaning products or do they not know what basic hygiene is? Why does it smell so bad in this spaceship? Like, why does it smell so bad in this spaceship? I digress. Mind you, while all of this is going on, throughout his screaming and all the commotion of this abduction, his wife, Anne, who is right next to him in the bed, is sound asleep. Sound asleep. How? I don't know. Suddenly, what Whitley presumed to be a female gray alien with big black eyes approaches him. For some reason, Whitley thought that it would be socially acceptable to ask her at some point something along the lines of, are you old? He asked this alien lady if she's old, and I'm like, bruh, that is very rude. But anyways, she says, yeah, I'm old. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, same. But on a serious note, This is when things start to escalate even more. The lady alien approaches Whitley and says, we are going to do an operation on your brain. Whitley, trapped on this exam table, exclaims that he is not giving her consent to operate on him. I don't consent. (laughs) He yells, you have absolutely no right. And the lady alien retorts. We do have a right. I mean, honestly, the audacity of this intergalactic bitch. I can't even deal. Whitley, obviously at this point, is praying that this is a nightmare. He's pleading with himself and looking for any sign that this isn't real. And so he asks the alien, can I smell you? And she wraps her hands around his head. And uh, guess what? She smells like cinnamon. After he has gotten a good whiff of her, 
her long fingers pry open this box and inside this box, a long needle is unveiled for the quote unquote surgery. Whitley pleads with the alien and he says, and this breaks my heart, you're going to ruin a beautiful mind. And then without further ado, she sticks the needle in the side of Whitley's head. Whitley describes that at this point, there is no physical pain. However, the needle does make a quote-unquote disgusting cracking sound as it enters his skull. And this is where it kind of just keeps getting worse and worse. Okay, again with the trigger warning. You have five seconds to get out of here because this is going to get graphic. The alien then rectally rapes Whitley with a probe. Whitley describes this action as the alien, and I quote, punching it in and feeling a sudden coldness overtake his body. So, so, so messed up. Anyways, so the next morning, Whitley wakes up with only bits and pieces, just fragments, vague memory of this trauma. And all he can really remember is seeing these big black eyes. And he tells his wife, I, th- I think an owl got in here during the night, which I don't know if you remember the movie The Fourth Kind, but when it came out, I think in like 2009-ish, at the time, to me, that movie was terrifying, and they do use owls as the the main alien situation, and it's very frightening. Hmm. And so I thought it was interesting that he mentioned that, and I do wonder now – Because they say the fourth kind is based on true events, I wonder now if Whitley's description from his book Communion, where he talks about these aliens, I wonder if the owl description is what inspired the owls and the fourth kind. Hmm. It could be just a common thing. I'm not sure. What year year was this uh, from again? Yes. So the abduction happened in 1985, uh, a day after Christmas, technically the 27th in the wee hours of the morning. And he wrote communion also in the 80s depicting this. I've heard of that book being like recommended. I didn't know the context of it. Yeah. So on the cover, there is an alien with big black eyes. And that's from what I heard on some podcasts and read about. Apparently, that was one of the major influences for how people describe aliens going forward that's like the the poster child if you will of what an alien is so that that book when he wrote it 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 popped off and he he got I'll get to it but he was very successful with that book so he tells his wife I think an owl got in here during the night and later more memories start to flood back in he realizes that It hurts his rectum when he sits down for extended periods of time. And then he also notices that there is a red mark on the side of his head where he remembered the needle going through. Despite these memories coming back in pieces, at this point he is, he's experiencing a growing certainty that this in fact was an abduction and he keeps it to himself. He doesn't tell a soul not even his wife. And obviously he kept that from her because he didn't want her to think that he was having some sort of episode or that he was crazy or yada yada. 
But anyway, yeah, so he's really concerned about this rectal pain, and he goes to see a doctor. The doctor at first suggests that he may have hemorrhoids, but that's before realizing that there's an actual injury. There is a lesion in his rectum. So just a question about the probe. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it like, obviously they didn't prep him for that. Mm -mm. Um, And so it was shoved in there. Um, was it like shoved in and out or was it just shoved in the once? Do we know? That was, that was hard for me to decipher because um, it was described as it being punched in. So I don't, I don't know if it was repeated or not based on what I read and watched. Um, but with like that either said, way, very invasive, but. Oh God. Yeah. Like terrifying, terrifying. I'm just kind of thinking like depending on which one it is would explain the intent more. Like if it was just the once, right. then it's like, oh, they're getting information. And then if it's the in and out, it's like, oh, they're hurting him on purpose just to hurt him. Well, one thing I actually did not put in my notes, but I just recalled from a, a podcast interview that Whitley did. Apparently the aliens, I don't know if they did this to him or if he heard of other people doing it just from the context, I'm not sure. But he said that, They have something that can stimulate the vagus nerve, which is responsible for all kinds of functions in your body. It's literally your gut feeling, and it does have a role in arousal also. And apparently when they use this device, whatever it may be, it can cause an involuntary erection. So I do think that with that being known, I think there is sexual intent involved, but only from the standpoint of like using that to obtain an erection or whatever to get a sperm sample, for example. Yeah. This anal probe, if I had to guess, I don't think it was sexual in nature because he did only have the one lesion. And I would imagine that if a probe was, was sorry guys, this is so graphic. If, If it were a repeated action that you would have a little bit more of a problem than a single lesion, it would be potentially lethal if if you know yeah, what I mean especially like with no preparation for that right so upon discovering this lesion the doctor looks to Whitley and says simply you've been raped you know you've been raped right and understandably when the doctor says this to Whitley he is completely overwhelmed he feels like he's going to get sick and furthermore this is really sad but also kind of sweet Whitley says that he does not want his wife to have to be with someone with this level of trauma and I think between the two fears of either having actually been abducted by aliens or having some sort of psychotic break having hallucinations some sort of mental break either one of those options is terrifying and equally upsetting and I can't imagine holding a secret like that from Connolly. Like if something were, like that were to happen to me, like or not being able to tell you or any of my good friends, like keeping that to yourself, that's got to be so draining over time. And whatever the case may be, he didn't want he did not want to put Anne, his wife, through any hardship. And so Whitley even considered offering her a divorce to spare any turmoil. He kind of was of the mindset of 
I'm damaged goods. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but kind of along the lines of I'm damaged goods. Why would anybody want to deal with someone like me who is going through this? That's just crazy. First and foremost, who is going to believe me anyway, if I do decide that I believe I was abducted and raped by aliens. So over time, he grows more and more certain that he was abducted by aliens. I should note, though, that the doctor did some tests on Whitley, and apparently everything came back negative. So with that portion, I don't really know what to think. But ultimately, Whitley can't take it anymore, and he does confide in a friend. He he brings it up to his friend named Timothy, tells him all about the abduction, and Timothy then encourages Whitley to finally tell Anne. He's like, you cannot keep this from her. You have to tell her. And so Timothy encourages Whitley to finally tell Anne. And when, when Whitley approached Anne to tell her his experience, she braced herself for the worst. She thought that he was going to ask for a divorce. Instead, he says, no, I've been abducted by aliens. And Anne, sweet bean, she said something along the lines of, oh, thank God I don't have to get a divorce. Like, that's love right there. That's a ride or die. I think it's wholesome because she believes him right off the bat, essentially. So that's love. So going forward, let's see. Like I mentioned, Whitley has this uh, hypnoregression session. Um, The doctor's name is Donald Klein. This hypnosis interview occurred on March 1st. 1986, just a couple months after his uh, abduction. So along with what I had transcribed earlier in this hypnoregression session, Whitley continues. He's screaming over and over and he shouts, what the fuck is it doing to me? But here's the kicker. Remember, I told you this incident happened December of 1985. What Whitley is remembering here in this part of the regression is not from the Christmas time abduction. This occurred at the same cabin two months earlier, October 1985. What the fuck? So yeah, this is where he discovers the Christmas incident was not his first rodeo and he had apparently suppressed memories prior to this. Whitley then recalls that he was with Anne and his friends Jacques and Annie at this cabin that October evening. And in the middle of the night, through this regression, he recalls the cabin suddenly in the middle of the night fills with a bright light. And then suddenly it's dark. As the darkness appears, there is a shadow of a figure that appears to be standing and donning a hood, staring at him from his doorway. It's giving Afrua. (laughs) It's just standing there. So, no, sorry, Whitley. If you're listening, this is not funny. We just, we laugh to cope. We laugh so we don't cry. Whitley further describes that the alien seems to be holding something that is causing this strange electrical sensation when it's gestured towards him it's unclear but i'm imagining something that like a baton or something Mm -hmm. it's just being like hail married in his direction and i don't know if this is the same electrical device that can stimulate the vagus nerve and cause erections and all that creepy stuff but as this happens or rather 
after this happens, the aliens then telepathically show Whitley imagery of both the past and the future. In these visions that he has, Whitley sees, this is so sad, he sees his son die, and then he sees what he thinks may have been the fiery end of the world. He mentions depictions of explosions and fire and just devastation. Then he relives in this regression the death of his father who passed way too soon, I believe, of a stroke or a heart attack. It was a heart attack, I think. And it's so heartbreaking to listen to Whitley recall this because Whitley, I think, originally is from Texas or at least spent part of his life in Texas before moving to New York. And in this regression, you kind of hear his Texas accent come out. And he's saying things like, oh, daddy, you lived a hard life. It's just like, it's just, it's so sad. And he's just reliving the moment his father passed away. And I just, I hate that for him. It's so sad. But that October night, this is what's crazy. At the time, his friends, Jacques and Annie, did not remember anything. They didn't remember anything at the time. Neither did he, neither did his wife. So after recovering this memory from the regression, he asks, Whitley asks Jacques and Annie to go into a hypnosis regression, completely blind, no context clues. Hey, would you be willing to speak with my therapist, basically? And surprisingly, Jacques and Annie agree to this request. And again, they had no idea what the doctor was going to ask them. Both Jacques and Annie get hypnotized and regress back to that October night. And guess what? They recall a very similar experience. The bright lights, the footsteps, all of it. I believe it was Jacques that said something along the lines of, oh shoot, I thought I slept in until 12. That's so rude of me to do because this light was so bright that it looked like it was daytime outside. It was that bright. And so then he, you know, fumbles through his bed and, he, and the light goes out and he's like, okay, good. It's not, it's, it's not late morning. I can go back to sleep. So he goes back to sleep and he did not remember this until this regression. So I don't know how you explain that. So after this, Whitley publishes his New York Times bestseller, Communion. The nonfiction novel is about his extraterrestrial experiences. And after Whitley was interviewed by Larry King, thousands of letters come in explaining that they too had very similar experiences. And these letters, uh, fun fact, are apparently now archived at Rice University. Um, at least they were at the time of filming of one of these documentaries. After these two experiences with the aliens, they're still not done with Whitley. Um, the aliens come for his son. Allegedly, the aliens do abduct his son. He is not harmed, but Whitley witnesses some pretty crazy stuff. Suddenly, his child's back in his bed, and I don't think his kid ever remembered it. And then later, Whitley is part of a mass-reported UFO sighting in New York, similar to the Phoenix Lights that I covered in episode one. Um, there is video imagery of what looks like lights in a V formation hovering in the sky. and um, Lots of people saw this New York sighting as well. Then again, at the cabin, it gets worse. The aliens come back and they push Whitley's head into his pillow, leaving him scared half to death and unable to move. The next day, Whitley feels a lump in his ear, which happens to be a bit bloody. 
Whitley goes to the doctor, and lo and behold, you ready for this? There is a mysterious implant moving inside his ear. In his ear, there is an implant that when the doctor cuts it open, it seems to evade his utensils to pull it out. And at this point, Whitley didn't announce himself who he was, but eventually I think the doctor puts two and two together and he's like, oh shit, this is the communion dude who got abducted by aliens multiple times. I'm not fucking with this. Like, this is an alien implant. Bye. And so he sews him back up. Whitley, last I heard, still has this implant. Maybe he got it removed, but it's fucking crazy. So ultimately, the doctor is unable to remove this and... Here's the kicker about this implant. Whenever Whitley puts a walkie-talkie up to his ear, it gives off signal. (laughs) Like radio interference signal. What in the actual hell? Okay, so that's wild. (laughs) Whitley would later become blacklisted from certain publishers that he had worked with in the past. Um, His two horror books that popped off, Um, one was called the Wolfen and I'm blanking on the other one off the top of my head, but he was kind of like a horror sci-fi esque fiction writer. And he went from that to writing a true, they say true autobiographical book about all of these encounters. And that book is the one that popped off. Here's where the story gets really sad. Devastatingly, Whitley's sweet wife, Anne, who refused to leave his side his wife, who believed in him, passes away. When? Uh, I want to say it was 2014 or 2015, so semi-recently. 2014 feels like yesterday. It's so long ago, though. But it's literally almost a decade Damn. ago. I, uh, what is time? Anyway, so Whitley, he believes that Anne is still with him and that she takes the form of a white moth when she wants to remind him that her spirit lives on. And the reason he believes that is because he saw this white moth after her passing in the dead of winter. Uh, What moth is flapping its wings trying to get your attention in the dead of winter? It's too cold out there. Ain't nobody got time for that. And additionally, he thinks that this is her because there was a poem that was very close to her heart that she had shared with him. And... When he saw this moth at first, he was like, what is going on? It's wintertime. And then he thought, the poem, it's Anne. And I think it's so sweet that he takes comfort in knowing that she's still with him. Whether it's the moth or not, doesn't matter. To me, she's with him no matter what. Like I mentioned, he got blacklisted. So he was struggling financially there for a hot second. I mean, haven't we all been there at some point or another? He has to, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) we're out of money. Please support Patreon. Um, (laughs) Please, please. We were trying to make content. Anyways, so because he's in financial strain, he has to leave his cabin behind, the cabin where he experienced all of these encounters. So he has to move out of state. I want to say he goes back to Texas, and then later he finds himself in California, and He's, I think, a little upset that the cabin is gone, but also there's got to be that double-edged sword of utter relief that he never has to go back there again. Except for later he does go back, just to say goodbye one last time, um, and some crazy stuff happens with that. But 
If you're interested in learning more about Whitley Schreiber, he does have a podcast called Dreamland that you can check out. Uh, my sources for this episode are the following. A shock doc documentary titled The Visitors, Dreamland podcast by Whitley Strieber, Communion by Whitley Strieber, and Edge of Reality Radio with Lee Spiegel. That's that's Whitley Strieber, and I personally, I cannot refute this implant. I think I think he's telling the truth. I've been wanting to watch that shock doc, by the way. Like that's one that like every time I'm on Discovery Plus, I'm always like, I'm gonna watch that later. And I just haven't. But also, I feel like when I was a kid, I saw something about him, like, a long time ago. And I don't remember, like, all the tea. But I feel like yeah. he I feel like he was a part of a documentary I saw about people that had the implants. Cause, and I don't remember what the documentary was, but it was, like, several different people who had implant experiences yeah no I would not be surprised if you have seen him around or heard of him before because his book like I said that was the poster child for what an alien looks like and he was on Larry King and that was a huge deal and he sold so many copies and so many people had similar experiences and even in the shock doc documentary I didn't put attention on this intentionally in the episode because it was about Whitley, but throughout the documentary, they interview some of the people that wrote him letters or later reached out and said, this happened to me. And yeah, I understand that mental illness is a thing. You can have hallucinations. You can live in an altered state of mind. I understand that, but that does not explain the lesion in his rectum. It does not explain the implant in his ear that apparently had some sort of intelligence behind it, that it was evading capture from this doctor. I just can't explain it. And I, I'm i going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think it's true. Like anybody who claims that they've been abducted by aliens, anybody who said aliens come and get me and then they did, people are always going to clap back and say, you're a faker. But I, I don't think Whitley's one of them. I can see one of the reasons why I may have been blacklisted in the book community because he started out as a fiction writer of that genre and then put out a nonfiction book in that genre. On the surface, it's giving creative writing. You know what I mean? It's, yes. It's on the surface. That's like anyone who doesn't know and anyone who hasn't heard about the hypno-regression therapy that he did and stuff yeah. like that, like, they might be like, yeah, well, he's a writer. You nailed it on the head. The main objection to his story is exactly what you just said. People question his credibility and his authenticity because he was a writer, and some people had the opinion that it was a cash grab. But I would, I personally would not put myself through that level of emotional torture and turmoil for a few bucks. I you know, so I, I'm i going to give this one the benefit of the doubt. Um, his case is widely covered, and he appears on several podcasts. So, Whitley, if you're listening and you would like to come on sometime, come on. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we would love to have a firsthand account, Whitley. Yes. Because <laughs> we love a firsthand account. Yes, we do. And that would be pretty iconic, actually. Come on. Come on. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> you can wrap with any thoughts you have if you have them. If not. 
What story had you shook this week, Santa? First of all, uh, I loved that. Um, I am probably going to, when we finish here, go watch that shock doc because I've been wanting to watch it for so long, like I said. Um, So the story that has me shook this week is The Haunting of Alma Fielding, which is also the name of a nonfiction paranormal book by Kate Summerscale, um, who has also written some really great other nonfiction books. Her other books are mainly about like true crime stuff that happened in Victorian England. And this Mm. is more of like the spiritualist movement and what was happening with the spiritualist movement between the two world wars. So it was like after the first world war and leading up to the second. So Alma Fielding, um, she was this 34 year old housewife seems very normal. Right. Mm -hmm. So she basically just one day, starts experiencing violent poltergeist activity within the home. Literally just like constantly things being just thrown. Her face cream got thrown. Stuff was always being thrown and broken, like dishes, vases. Jeez. And at one point, it was thought that the violent activity was directed at the men in the house because she lived in the house with her husband, Les, her son, Donald, who was 16, Mm -hmm. and a family friend who was, like, post-divorce and living with them. His name is George. And it seemed like most of the activity was directed at them. Also, one thing about Alma, she had a lot of health problems. She had, like, a lot of kidney problems. She also had gone through, like, two bouts of breast cancer and had that removed. It was crazy. So, basically, all of this takes place in 1938. Like I said, it all started with all of that violent activity one day, and it actually started after she had come home complaining of pelvic pain. Uh, She came home and took some, like, antibiotics and a sedative and just, like, went to sleep. And then her husband, like, I think, like, the next day had gotten his teeth removed so that he could have dentures put in. And so he came and laid down with her and they were both like on bed rest. Like she was on bed rest for her condition. And then he was on bed rest because all of his teeth got pulled and he's feeling away. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So they were both just like sedated and in the bed. And then they started like seeing shit happening. They started seeing like the stuff flying around and, it was just stuff Wait, being were they thrown both the on plan- were they both on painkillers? I believe I believe so. <laughs> okay, that that could explain it, but maybe some laudanum. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah, so and this was 1938 by the way. Okay. Uh, when this when all this was going down and also a fun fun fact. I guess like everybody was having dentures back then like at an early age because Alma Alma totally had dentures already, and she was 34. <gasps> she had a full a mouthful of dentures. Well, that's well, gosh crazy. darn. Yeah, that just has nothing to do with anything, but I, I just found that really crazy that she had that dentures That is crazy. Already. 34 but you years know why? old. You know why? why she had to have dentures? This is so fucking stupid that I'm even talking about this. I need to know. <laughs> but I need to this know. This is the most fascinating thing to me, is that she had to get dentures because when she was younger – she uh, brushed her teeth with a horsehair 
toothbrush and it gave her anthrax. <gasps> oh like, my God. And back in the day, that was like a risk that you were running with using horsehair. For that's somehow, a risk I'm like, willing to take. <laughs> somehow anthrax was getting distributed <laughs> that way. And so she brushed her teeth and it got like in her bloodstream and just like her teeth, I guess, like, I don't know how the fuck scientifically any of it makes that's sense, but up. that was given as the reason as to why she had to have dentures at such an early age. And the reason is yeah. <laughs> and the reason is anthrax. Um, <laughs> and unrelated to any of this actual story. Um, I went on a side quest. So basically, when Alma started experiencing this activity in the home of mm-hmm. just the objects being thrown, also furniture was being thrown, like chairs and stuff just silly. Um, she reached out to this publication called the Sunday pictorial, which the Sunday pictorial, much like shook podcast had put out a call for readers stories Mm -hmm. on their paranormal experiences. So they were asking for shook stories and she called them. So they were asking for you to like write in, And she called them and she was like, I have some complaints. I'm having some crazy shit going on in my home and I need y'all to come down here. And so she really made a case for herself that it Mm -hmm. was urgent. And so what ended up happening was the, the Daily Mirror, which is the sister publication to the Sunday Pictorial, they sent the three reporters to her house And those reporters claimed to have witnessed a book slide from a bookcase, a glass leap from the table, and a mirror drop from the wall. There was always just movement of objects happening all throughout the house, all the live long day and night. Anywhere this woman was, actually, we will come to find out. So the Sunday Pictorial did put out an article. The headline was, Ghost Wrecks Home, Family Terrorized. This is where this clergyman named Reverend Francis Nicole reached out to a ghost hunter, the head ghost hunter for the International Institute for Psychical Research, Nandor Fodor. He did a lot of work in the paranormal community leading up to having this role with this organization. Also, I just want to say I'm obsessed with the fact that his name is Nandor because I am obsessed with the show, What We Do in the Shadows. And Nandor is my favorite character. I still need to watch that show. Everybody says, Amanda, you would love this. I'm like, okay, okay, I'll add it to my queue. You would love it so much. And I hope that one day we can watch it together because I know that we would be cackling. Yeah. Anyways, um, so Nandor Fodor, the chief ghost hunter for the International Institute for Psychical Research, was roped into this case but really he wasn't roped into it he was more just like he was given the article as like a hey check this out um because the t is nandor fodor was actually um his reputation in the paranormal community was actually pretty bad at the time and really the the organization that he was in 
was actually kind of low-key trying to kick him out. And that's because, like, he was he was said to have been too much of a skeptic sometimes in his mm-hmm. pursuits and also, I guess, considered to be rude to mediums. And what that tells me is that Nandor was a man about the facts. And he, he wants pr- answers, answers. Yeah. Answers. He wants answers <laughs> and he'll do his best to tell you. And I relate to that because that's exactly how I feel. Like I am a person who wants to believe, but like, let me see the facts. And if I feel like something looks super staged, I'm not going to go along with it and be like, oh my God, right. oh my God that was so scary. Like, <laughs> it, you know, like I, I have the power of discernment and so did Nandor Fodor. And honestly, he's a king for not just like saying any and everything was a ghost. Yeah, I appreciate a skeptic for sure. Like I think, yeah. okay, with anything in life, I think if you do not come from a place of skepticism, at least at the beginning, you're doing it all wrong. You can't be willing to accept every single thing that is thrown at you because that's really naive. And that also would mean that you just trust any and everybody that has a ghost story. Right. And I love a good ghost story. I will entertain a good ghost story and I will enjoy a good ghost story any day of the week. But do I believe every single ghost story that comes across my desk? No. But if you listen to Shook Podcast, you already know that by now. Yeah. But yeah, so Nandor, his colleagues were like, we got to do something about him because we're trying to have, we're trying to have the sensational like ghost tea in the papers because, you know, a big part of all of this, it really is the impending war that was on the horizon. Like there was a lot of fear happening then. And I guess there's something to be said about the public's intense interest in the spiritualism and the ghost encounters that people claimed and people really enjoyed that shit. Like, so when this article came out, about Alma Fielding, just like the Fox sisters, just like the Davenport brothers, just like the other people we've talked about, the crowds gathered, just like Thomas Lynn Bradford, the crowds gathered outside of their house and they were nosy and they wanted answers and they they wanted to see some objects flying, you know? Yeah. So anyway, Nandor got involved. Fodor sent his assistant, Laurie, to make the initial contact at the fielding home. And Laurie claimed to have seen a wine glass jump from Alma's hand, shattering in midair and falling to the floor. A second glass did the same thing, but fell on a rug. And then a third glass hit the light fixture on the ceiling. So... There's that eyewitness account. There's so many, like Laurie aside, there's so many different people who have like given a firsthand account that they witnessed these things. Like, so her husband, Les, was like, I've seen it. Her son, Donald, her son, Donald actually was pretty skeptical, but all of it made him really scared. So he went to go, he moved out of the home and went to stay at a neighbor's house because he felt unsafe in the home. Uh-huh. And then George, their guy that just lived there, he also testi- testified to it. 
Okay, so all of what I'm hearing here is multiple people saw these glasses fly. Multiple. So technically, they could file a glass action suit against this poltergeist. (laughs) Sorry, that was stupid. That was really stupid. (laughs) I can't resist a pun. (laughs) I'll take it. It's funny. It was good. That was well thought out. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so like I will say with Laurie's observation that he witnessed, it's like coming from Alma's hand in all of every instance of the wine glass. It's like it's leaping out of her hand. That can definitely be something that she has just finessed, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm, I'm definitely not a believer yet. Oh, and date wise. So I did say earlier that this was, this was all happening in 1938, February 21st, 1938 is when Nandor was first made aware of this article and the goings on with Alma Fielding. And then February 24th is when Nandor goes himself to the house to finally meet Alma for the first time. He brought with him three eggs and three tumblers in case the ghost wanted to smash them. He came prepared with objects for the ghost to smash. And Alma's husband, Les, said that the day before they had participated in a seance and a local medium attempted to exercise the ghost. The psychic told Alma and Les that there may be murdered babies in a well in their back garden and told Uh, them to... (laughs) Excuse me? There may be... Just the, just the, like, the blurriness of that. There might be murdered, dead, ba- dead murdered babies in your back garden. So vague, yet so specific. <laughs> might, might not be murdered babies back there. But if, in any event, you should plant some marigolds back there. <laughs> is what the medium said. Regardless, just plant some marigolds just in case there's murdered babies. But there might not be. But if there's not, like, at least you have some marigolds back there. (laughs) While you're at it, throw in some azaleas. (laughs) But the cool thing is, I I did look up, like, why would you tell someone to plant marigolds? Because, like, I don't know all the symbolism with flowers, but apparently marigolds symbolize purity, auspiciousness, and the divine, and their fragrance is believed to ward off evil spirits. So. Good. I see why she did say miracles, but I don't see why she just was so unsure about the murdered babies. Just, are they or aren't they? Yeah. Enough of this objection hearsay. I can't. People just be saying anything. Like... (laughs) I mean, back then, people really did just say anything, especially mediums talking to the papers. That was... Oh, yeah. That was a... Let's see who can be the most shocking, I feel like. Mediums getting involved, talking to the papers, talking to the families. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like I said before, crowds had been building outside the house since the day that Alma first called the pictorial. Um, 
and had gotten so large that the police were sent out to protect the house. So that was kind of like an ongoing thing for a while uh, for the crowds to just be gathered out there. And so this is a situation that went on for like this whole like spring. Yeah. Um, so this is where I have to refer back to the book. So as we know, um, Nandor has arrived to meet Alma for the first time, and he brought his three eggs and three tumblers to see if the ghost will take the bait and throw him around. So, first passage. Fodor, Nandor Fodor, tried to put Les at ease, telling him how excited he was at the prospect of meeting the poltergeist. He took the eggs that he had brought, placed them inside the tumblers, and lined them up on the mantelpiece. Suddenly, something whacked the other side of the living room door. Les opened the door and found a bake-like clock on the hall floor, its case cracked. A dent had been made in one of the door's panels. The clock, Les said, came from his and Alma's bedroom. Alma and Les showed Fodor around, pointing out the astonishing array of items that had been smashed over the previous few days. 36 tumblers, 24 wine glasses, 15 china egg cups, 5 teacups, 4 saucers, a salad bowl, 3 light bulbs, 9 eggs, 2 plates, a pudding basin, 2 vases, a water jug, a milk jug, and a jar of face cream. Um, what? So there were literally... Just to name a few. <laughs> so there, what you're telling me, what you're telling me, Santa, is there were literal flying saucers. Yes, there were. <laughs> That's There's a just... lot of shit that got thrown. I was just waiting for you to stop listing off stuff and it kept going. I'm like, holy shit, that's a lot. That's literally, that's literally my whole china cabinet that Nani, ga- Nani gave me. <clears throat> yeah. Damn. That's crazy. That's a lot. <laughs> it's a bit excessive. It's a bit aggressive. Um, <laughs> so, so after his tour, Fodor interviewed Alma alone. She confirmed the accuracy of the piece in the pictorial. He asked about the injuries that she and Les had sustained because they had some some abrasions and things. Oh, yeah. Of course. On their bodies. Ceramic As, is sharp, y'all. Yeah. Because these things, these objects, allegedly were being hurled at people. Ugh. It, it, n- not always. Sometimes they were just being, like, thrown at the wall, but they were sometimes being hurled at people in particular. Yikes. As well as cutting her thumb, she said, she had bruised her head when she fell on the stairs, and again when a tin of polish whirled out of the kitchen cupboard. A vase had hit Les on the head when he was on the landing outside the bathroom. I don't think these bruises were intentional, Alma said. I think it just happened that we were in the way. She seemed to want to play down the poltergeist's aggression. When Fodor asked if any of the incidents of the past few days had been comical, she recalled that on Tuesday the lid to the whistling kettle had gone missing, only to be found in Dawn's room, perched like a beret on the head of a white china cat. But most of the phenomena frightened her. 
Alma described what it was like to have a glass snatched from her hand. She felt a chill and a sudden pressure before the glass flew up and shattered in the air or fell unbroken to the ground. Objects could be taken in any room, she said, whether or not she was present. Oh, my God. And he asked her if she thinks she's psychic, and she's like, I don't know. Maybe. She said that these things happening is not contingent upon her being present, but as we will come to find out, it actually kind of is. And Mm. so because of her being kind of at the center of this, everyone kind of thinks she is a medium of some sort. Mm -hmm. And so Nandor brings her to the International Institute for Psychical Research to have some controlled seances, much like Maggie and Kate Fox did and the Davenport brothers did when people were trying to figure out, like, if this was phenomena or if this was man-made. I'd like to see more of that in present day. Right. (laughs) Right. That would be great. Like, our interest in the paranormal and the unexplained is, I don't know, it's becoming more and more mainstream by the day, but it is kind of a fringe Mm -hmm. uh, obsession. And the news, for example, you're not going to hear a lot about paranormal activity. You'll hear about UFO sightings, but you won't hear about this stuff. And you're not going to hear about any detectives doing their digging unless you go to literally the travel channel discovery plus any of those channels that specialize in that stuff it's not it's not mainstream in the way of the news but this out here what you're telling me that was did i hear you right it was in the newspaper yeah it was all over the newspapers this kind of stuff back then it was all over the newspapers but a big reason for that is that it was providing entertainment And some kind of escape for people who were very, very anxious about a second world war. It was very much clear to everybody that that was going to happen. Everyone Mm -hmm. just knew it was going to happen, but didn't know exactly when the, when the shoe was going to drop or whatever. Mm -hmm. They were just waiting for it to go down. And so in a way, all of this was kind of a way to put their anxieties on something a little more like trivial Right. Similar to the way we watch horror movies to like get scared and we get excited about getting scared right. from that because we know Everybody it's not needs. Well, we know it's not real, but with the with the ghost stuff back then, there was a healthy amount of skeptics, but there was also a lot of believers because back then it was so much harder to to validate these things. Yeah, and we all need an escape, and that back then that was just Mhm. The bee's knees. Let's talk about the hot gossip surrounding this poltergeist next door. Yes. He has a thing for teacups. At least that's the tea that I hear he likes, on, on he the He likes streets. to break things. <laughs> He's got a little bit of a rage problem. <laughs> so, at this time, Sigmund Freud's work had been published in English in the 1920s. And the press now referred regularly if satirically, to neuroses and fixations, inhibitions and inferiority complexes, sublimation and repression, the ego, the id, the libido, the talking cure, and the unconscious mind. This was like becoming like 
mainstream. Freudisms were becoming mainstream in in the media. Oh my god! Yes. So, so Fodor was entranced by the idea that individuals contained secret worlds hidden from themselves, and that supernatural events might be stories to interpret, symbols to decode. He talked about his new psychological theories with friends such as Eileen Garrett, one of the most famous clairvoyants in England. Eileen agreed that her personal gifts might be psychological rather than spiritual, and that her spirit guides, Uvani, an Arab warrior, and Abdul Latif, a Persian physician, might not be mystic revenants, but parts of her subconscious self. So in the 30s there was a rise in people kind of like taking into account these psychological elements of, of everything really. Right. Like, and Nandor I think was getting the criticism of being cynical about spiritualism because he was factoring in or he was willing to consider psychological reasons for things instead of just being like it's a ghost right right it's another ghost man i did not expect sigmund freud to enter the chat and i'm glad he did (laughs) you know what's funny what you won't be surprised to know that harry houdini does enter the chat in this book (laughs) (laughs) to the surprise of no one harry houdini is in this book he's not important to the story but he is mentioned Thank God. He's mentioned in ways that I have mentioned him many times in regarding his proximity to this type of stuff. Um, Nandor Fodor was also seeing how some of the people's ghost claims and stuff could have like a sexual psychological connection. Oh, like incubus succubus or strictly... There is some of that. Later, there's some of that with Alma. But then there's also, like, the connection of, like, maybe, like, sexual abuse that happened as a child kind of manifesting itself in, like, something happening now and maybe, like, trying to get some attention. Well, I've heard about poltergeists that puberty is a thing. Sometimes, um... Poltergeists show themselves if someone in the home is going through puberty. I don't know if I'm getting that right or not, but that's what I thought I remember hearing once about that. Alma did say that when she was like 12 or 13 that she had this like man that she would see like come out of her closet. But it was like it was almost like a sleep paralysis demon Uh type thing. Just some scary figure that would come out of her closet. I like that. Okay, so... February 24th is the day that Nandor himself visited the home of Alma Fielding. And so here comes some more passages. (laughs) Fodor spent much of the morning of Friday, February 25th, 1938, on the phone, excitedly inviting friends and colleagues to meet Alma Fielding at the International Institute for Psychical Research. So Nandor really believed after meeting Alma that, like, this will be my good, like, ghost tea that will save my job. They won't kick me out because I'm bringing them some real ghost tea. That was why he really, like, took an interest in her because he was like, I think this story might be the one to save my job. Huh. 
Yeah. So regardless of if he ever was like skeptical of her, you can see where there was probably motivation for him to amp up her antics if it mm-hmm. if it wasn't real. Fodor asked Alma whether there had been any trouble since he left her the previous evening. There had, she said. That morning, she and Rose had been at the Welcome Cafe in Thornton Heath when her teacup and saucer were smashed out of her hand and a glass of milk crashed to the floor. Their friend Mabel, who ran the cafe, brought Alma a cup of Bovril. I dared not drink it, Alma told Fodor. I sat for some time spooning it. But while talking, I forgot about my fears and lifted it to my lip. It immediately flew off. So this is our first instance of Alma's poltergeist activity happening outside of the home. This happened in a public cafe. Uh, But once again, this poltergeist activity was attached to her hand. Mm. So it's like... It's all this talk about stuff flying out of her hands. It's like, it's giving you through it, but okay. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I I threw it. I threw it. So, Alma, after this little, like, cafe moment, goes to the place, the International Institute of Psychical Research, to have her first meeting with Nandor's colleagues uh, where they will witness her seances in their controlled seance room. Uh, They will witness whatever happens. Whatever happens, happens. So most experimental subjects liked to sit in the dark, but Alma chose to walk around in the light, which that reminds me of the Davenport brothers, how they used to do all their seances in the dark in the theaters. Mm -hmm. Fodor, Dr. Wills, and Dr. Freyworth accompanied her as she paced the room, clasping a tall, dimpled glass. At 3.30 p.m., they heard a bang and saw that a brass-bound brush, three inches long, had fallen about 12 feet away. Hmm. Fodor was sure that Alma had still been holding the glass with both hands when the brush landed. He picked it up and found that it was warm. Alma recognized it as her own. She had last seen it in her bedroom, she said. So things like Hmm. that kept happening. She would be brought in on many different occasions to be observed in the controlled seance room and in broad daylight. And it is described that objects from her home that would not have been there appeared like Hmm. but they would be like thrown or fall from somewhere that seems like the dumbest magic trick ever that like (laughs) if we were watching it we would be like i literally watched you throw that (laughs) like i literally watched you pull that out of your fucking petticoat and throw it across the room did you ever see that i think it was america's funniest home videos or something where a kid took their What's the fairy toy called where you pull the string and the fairy goes up like this and it flies into the fireplace? <laughs> yes, that was. <laughs> and oh, they that's cried. That's Alma. <laughs> it's, that is Alma. 
it's giving Alma. So weird. Like, yeah, so these objects were allegedly coming from her home, but like they they're trying to explain it like it was coming from a different plane of existence in dropping into that plane. For example, in this passage, so they after their first meeting with Alma, they broke for tea. They broke for afternoon tea. Mm-hmm. After tea, Alma paced the room. She was walking with Fodor and Dr. Freyworth at 4.15 p.m., clutching a glass with both hands, when a small circular tin of Carter's Little Liver Pills, a popular... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Carter's Little Liver Pills. <laughs> When a, okay. small cir- when a small circular tin of Carter's Little Liver Pills, a popular over-the-counter laxative, fell with a clatter behind her. <laughs> <laughs> Not behind her. Alma identified it as a tin from her dressing table at home. Oh, my Fodor- God. <laughs> oh, my God. Fodor picked up the container and found that, like the brush, it was warm to the touch. A port's... Apports, which we're talking about things that I guess like appear, apports were usually warm on arrival. The heat, it was supposed, was generated by the energy expended when an item undid and reconstituted itself as it passed from one plane to another, or it was warm because it was in her hand. <laughs> and then she threw it and it has body heat. Oh my God. This is the funniest story you've ever told. <laughs> <So> stupid. <laughs> Like, I've been, ever since I started reading this, I was like, y'all wanted a ghost story that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Y'all, y'all were that thirsty. <laughs> and honestly, if I had been alive on the precipice of World War II, I would have probably been eating this up, too. I would have been like, yes, uh, give me the tea. Uh, I would have been outside the fielding home, like, let me see some shit. Like, right. The events of the afternoon observation in the controlled seance room had been even better than Fodor had hoped. Alma's poltergeist had managed not only to move things, but to produce them from thin air. For the Countess, who had been raised as a Roman Catholic, Alma's apports were spiritualistic miracles reminiscent of the wonders produced by the highest type of medium, the Catholic saints. For Fodor, as a secular Jew, they were precious scientific evidence, proofs of the poltergeist force that could make objects travel through space, vanish, and reappear. He measured, weighed, and cataloged each of the items that had arrived in the studio that day. So, yeah, I'm just so confused just by the way this is written, I guess. like, So there's multiple people that seem to have observed that objects were appearing out of thin air. And again, I don't know to what extent that really is. Was it appearing out of thin air like you're looking at you're looking in my hands and you're not ever breaking focus from looking at my hands and then suddenly something just like materializes? Yeah. Or is it something falling from the sky? Is it something being kicked across the room? Like, what do you mean by appearing out of thin air? Because I really need 
I need more deets. So Nandor and Alma were leaving the Institute after that first day of being observed. And Dr. Wills was going to drive them home, I guess. Ten minutes into the car ride, a saucer flew up from the back seat and snapped loudly into four pieces. And the amplifier lid twice banged open. Fodor asked Dr. Wills to stop the car so that he could move to the back. He sat next to the amplifier, placing one of his feet between it and Alma's leg. The phenomena continued. Alma's bag smacked into his face, her shoe disappeared, then her hat and her diamante clip. Fodor shifted towards Alma and held her from behind, his left hand clutching her left hand, his right arm resting on her right wrist. So he was like holding her arms just to like see if it was like coming from her hands, Hmm. I guess. So anyway, this is where I started to form my personal opinions on what I think is going on with Alma Fielding. Um, But, you know, you feel however you feel after you hear this. Um, <laughs> the breathy Marilyn Monroe of it all. The, the Marilyn Monroe of it all. Buckle in. So, <laughs> so like Nandor's in the back seat, right? H- has her restrained to like, I guess, keep her from throwing shit <laughs> against against her will to keep the poltergeist from making her throw things Mm. is what I guess is happening. Even though there's also like the things appearing as well and disappearing in addition to the things flying out of her, her hand. Alma was wearing a fur glove on her right hand, which reached almost to the elbow, but she had misplaced the other glove, leaving her left hand bare. Somehow, the glove on her right hand removed itself while Fodor was holding her. Hmm. He didn't notice it slide off, but felt it emerge beneath her left wrist. It was the soft, empty tip that was touching my fingers. When he next looked down, he saw that the glove had crept back onto her right hand, and a few minutes later was encasing her lower arm. It seemed impossible that Alma could have pulled it on without his noticing. The incident, Fodor said, filled him with a sense of the marvelous. It was like being in Alice in Wonderland. He took both her hands and held them tight. So, like, first of all, since her left-hand glove was missing, the loose glove that he felt was probably the left-hand glove. Because hmm. he's, he's like, I looked, and then I saw that, her right-hand glove was on, actually. They are playing Twister back there. If you just wanted to, like, feel her up, just say that. <laughs> yeah. This is so silly to me. This whole story's so fucking silly. So, Fodor and Dr. Willis followed Alma into her house at 7 p.m. Alma's friend Rose Saunders had called... So Fodor asked her about the incident in Mabel's cafe that morning. Rose confirmed Alma's account, adding that a few of their fellow customers had dismissed the tale of the poltergeist as a put-up job. But when they saw Alma's mug of Bovril fly off and soak Rose's coat, they had hurried out of the shop in fright. 
Dr. Freyworth, who lived nearby, came over to help Fodor and Dr. Wills conduct further experiments with Alma. The sitting room was cold, and Alma was wearing a thin frock, so Fodor encouraged her to put on Dr. Wills' big overcoat. The investigators emptied the coat's deep, flap-covered pockets in readiness for a ports. Alma sat with her arms folded. Something is moving by this side of my arm, said Alma at 9.15 p.m., gesturing to her right. It is still moving on my hip, she said two minutes later. I feel shivery, she added, and after a few minutes, it is still moving, almost like a hand in my pocket. Ooh. She ain't slick. You know what I mean? She ain't slick. (laughs) Fodor lifted the right-hand pocket flap and reached in and found the Diamante clip, which was the one that had gone missing in the car. Uh Uh-huh. Fodor planted his wristwatch in the left-hand pocket to see if it would disappear. Dr. Wills followed Alma, watching closely as she walked upstairs and back down, her hands clasped in front of her. Fodor felt inside the pocket. The watch was gone. She went to the kitchen, walked upstairs, went to the kitchen again. She came back to the sitting room and sat in the armchair. Something is moving near the side of my leg, said Alma. Still moving. Still moving. Now it's stopped. Fodor reached into the pocket and pulled out the watch. Fodor returned the watch to the left-hand pocket. Dr. Wills put a penknife in the right-hand pocket. Dr. Freyworth gave Alma a golden pencil, which she clasped under the lapel of the coat. She wandered around the house again. The knife vanished, reappeared. Dr. Wills felt the outside of the pocket move. By the end of the night, said Fodor, we were quite inured to these crazy happenings. We laughed heartily, and our laughter did Miss Fielding good. Alma was becoming playful, even flirtatious. Her guests were watching her, touching her, and teasing her. The poltergeist, instead of terrorizing her, was serving her. Les and George kept out of the way. The intimate maneuverings of the magic taxi ride, as Fodor described their drive to Thornton Heath, had evolved into this skittish vanishing game. In the car, Alma's foot had slipped out of her shoe, her hand into her glove, and Fodor had checked her movements by wrapping himself around her. In the house, Alma had slipped into Dr. Will's big coat and then let the men's hands and their belongings the watch, the knife, the golden pencil, slip in and out of her pockets, moving against her hip and leg and making her shiver. So some thoughts on that passage. I don't know what the deal was with like seances and magic tricks and stuff back then, but like people really just would let people leave the room and come back. No. Like, they were letting her walk all the way up the stairs and then come back and be like, I don't have your watch anymore. (laughs) And they were letting her go into the kitchen and then come back and be like, I don't know. It's not in the pocket anymore. I wonder what could have happened. Where could it be? 
It disappeared from the pocket when I left the room and came back. I didn't put my hands in my pocket and like put it in the chaos drawer in the kitchen and then come back here. I don't know what pulled the chair from under you and picked up the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. All I know is I walked away and then I came back. It's so dumb. And then like this, and then this whole thing is just her getting felt up by three different dudes. I think she's a horny faker. I'm just going to say that right now. I do too. I 100% (laughs) do as well. And the last straw for me where I was just like, forget it. Just just forget it. Um, Was when I found out that she had graduated to claiming to have now had sex with the poltergeist. And that she was afraid that she was pregnant from the poltergeist. Okay. All right. Uh it's just it's just all of like the sexual nature of it all. It's like if you want to have an open marriage, just say that. It's giving childhood trauma that yeah. later manifests as attention seeking behavior. Yeah. And I can't hate on her for that. It happens. You know? Yeah. But she they gave her an inch and she literally took a mile with the whole Oh, it's a polter pregnancy. Like, what? No. Yeah. It's giving, like, Roxy Hart, Chicago, the way that Roxy just, like, ate up that media attention. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And just hammed it up. And I feel like that's what's happening here, which, like, I can't blame Alma for... I can't blame Alma for wanting the attention. I mean, hell, I'm a Gemini. I love attention to a degree. I love good attention. I love me some words of affirmation and stuff. But like, yeah. Have I told you lately you're a badass queen? There's your oh my words God, of affirmation. You. Oh my God. <laughs> and also some more tea that was also my last straw. How many last straws do you have? <laughs> Which pocket is it in? <laughs> yeah. Well, the last straw that I had from the previous thing reappeared. Oh, and so now I am disappearing the last straw, my my actual last straw. (laughs) My actual last straw was George, the guy that lives in their house. He had, I think, a couple of instances where he awoke in the night and Alma was like standing over him wearing like a red nightgown and just like looking super creepy, like smiling at him super creepy, like... (laughs) like standing over him and he like screamed in the night when he woke up he was like not sure if it was a dream or whatever because I think I feel like back then everybody was having sedatives for bed or something so like it was easy to be like that that can't have been real and he went and like brought it up to Les and Alma and was like why were you in my room and why were you doing that? Why were you looking like that? And why were you wearing that red nightgown in my room? She was like, um, I wasn't in your room and I don't even have that red nightgown anymore. I gave it to my mom. So she knew exactly what red nightgown he was talking about because I'm pretty sure she fully was in his room. Yeah. Case wearing closed. the red She's nightgown. Cause I think 
the in the book, the author of this book kind of like alluded to the fact that it seemed like she was kind of like trying to make something happen with George. Oh God, yeah. And it seems like George like curved her. But I feel like something probably definitely happened between her and Nandor because there was a moment in the book where he like took her on like a beach vacation. But like he took her on the beach vacation with his assistant Lawrence and Lawrence's girlfriend and one of the doctors and the doctor's spouse. So it was very much giving a couples weekend. Couples retreat. It was a triple date. It was giving that, and um, but he, but he like wrote it down in his notes, like it was professional. Mm-hmm. But I just I'm very unsettled by the whole thing, and that's just how I feel. Again, like this is this is a longer book. I've just kind of like gotten to this point in my telling of it to you guys. Uh, I've gotten to my last straw with it. I'm not going to spoil to you you know, the rest of Alma's antics that take place because this is, in my opinion, a woman who, like Amanda said, probably experienced some trauma in her life. Like she was a housewife and we all know how like housewives back then had a very like oppressed existence in a way. Like they, they just had that expectation to be the homemaker and, have the dinner ready and, but always be looking put together. And it was a thankless job. And she was probably bored of it all. She was probably bored of it all. And also had like nearly died multiple times from like different bouts of cancer and like poor health. And she's probably like, let me live it up. Let me, (laughs) let me get a dollop of attention, a dollop of clout in the spiritual community I don't know. I mean, who knows? Who knows, though? Like, it could have been a sex ghost. It could have been a poltergeist appearing things out of thin air. Like, maybe maybe things really were appearing out of thin air, like materializing in right before your eyes. Here's a theory. Maybe it's a bit of both. Yeah, that's actually kind of what Nandor was trying to get at in like his hypothesis of the situation going into it he he kind of hypothesized that she with her all of her physical pain and emotional pain and etc had sort of like manifested this energy mm-hmm. in a way or also was subconsciously doing these things but also right believing that it was another force making it happen. Right. No, I'm I'm right there with you and I think maybe but just my personal theory having not read the full book but maybe the poltergeist is real and she milked that cow for all it was worth. Yeah. And when the udders ran out, she said, okay, what can I do to embellish this story and mm-hmm. keep all of this attention on me? Cause I lack yeah. that. I want it. Yeah. Cause it seemed like she kept kind of taking it up a notch mm-hmm. because it all originally was all isolated to the home. 
And then it became this thing. It's like, oh, it's happening at the cafe. Oh, it's happening in the car. Oh, it's happening in the controlled seance room where usually when they would bring people into the controlled seance room, shit didn't happen. She was even bringing in, at one point in one of the seances, she brought like a bird in, like strapped to her leg and it just like flew out. Oh my God. (laughs) She brought a rat one time. And then at one point they started like stripping her clothes. They started like stripping her down before she would like do the stuff just to like prove that she didn't have anything on her. Oh God. I, I don't know. Sorry for Alma. It's just a whole, now, but... I know. Cause Damn. honestly, I probably would have been like, give me, give me that dollop of attention. Give me that dollop of clout. Like I would have been so bored. And also like going into another war, like everybody was probably like, I'm probably going to fucking die anyway. Let's go. <laughs> Let's make some shit up. But yeah, um, that was my story, which is like, I, that's, that's one of those that I went into it and I was like, I feel like this is going to be really cool, but it was, some of the stuff is just a bit outlandish for me. It's a bit outlandish. Yeah. You go in blind and sometimes you don't see any more clearly afterwards. I don't know. That was one of those stories where you really don't know what you're going to get until you get to the end. And I liked that about this story. You had me fully convinced at the beginning, like, oh, God, this is a bona fide poltergeist story. And I don't don't think it is. If it is, it's only half true. I don't think it is. Like, at first, I, I definitely gave benefit of the doubt for as long as I could. Yeah. Until... My last straw, my, my true last straw was her just like being in George's room and like terrorizing him in the night because I really just think that she is mentally unwell. I think so too. But also really, really good at illusions, like really gifted with the illusions And I don't know, that's just my opinion, but I am going to do some more uh, looking into this and we'll see. We'll see if my opinions change. I guess I'll stay tuned. Stay tuned. And I am definitely curious to know, what do you think? If you're watching on YouTube, please let us know uh, in the comments, what do you think about Alma Fielding? And if you have any more additional tea, let me know. Because if you have any tea to support her claims, I'm still, I'm all ears. Yeah. Or get at us on Instagram. I don't, I don't care. I want some feedback on this. Yes, please let us know. And also, like I mentioned before, Whitley Strieber, if you happen to stumble upon our podcast. Hello. Hi. How are you? And let us know if you'd like to come on sometime. I I believe Whitley's story. I don't think I believe Alma's story. Rest in peace, Alma. Whatever happened to you, I'm sorry. Because it sounds like you went through a lot to do things like that. It had to be exhausting. Oh, God. It's like uh, the boy who cried wolf type situation where it's like, how long can... Like, once you've damaged your reputation, 
you know, if, 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 if the folks around her did catch on that she was a faker, you know for a fact that she was grasp <laughs> back at the straws, grasping <laughs> at straws, grasping at Santa's last straws <laughs> to keep this going as long as possible because that was what she wanted. She wanted to trick folks and yeah it's exhausting over time geez what if her like dream in life was to be like a great illusionist like harry houdini and this was the only way she this was like her entree and this was the only way that she knew how to like you know put herself out there like that yeah i think that mm -hmm. and like she's like i'm good at this shit Somebody Maybe. notice. I'm trying to. I'm trying to play the dime museum circuit. All right. Well, I loved that Santa. That was great. Definitely took me on a ride, and uh, <laughs> and I didn't know where the destination was, but we found our way there. I still don't know. We actually. still don't even know. But it was great. Hey, um, you still came correct with the facts and plenty of commentary throughout. So I say this one's a win. Um, yeah, but anyway, God. I, I reckon, here I go saying I reckon, I reckon that's our show. I reckon so that's our for show. Um, please give us a follow on Instagram. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And please, if you got it like that, join our Patreon because... We are trying to go on some ghost trips. So if you have it in the budge, we have tiers starting at just $3 a month. So wow. that's literally less than a Starbucks coffee, which is really sad. All right, y'all. That's our show. Thanks for listening. And Santa, go on and get you some Taco Bell. I will. I believe I will. Thank you. Rolls are reversed. I'm having spaghetti. It's technically bolognese. Uh, and Santa's having Taco Bell. Bet you didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> All right. Bye, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in to Shook. New episodes of Shook drop every other Wednesday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Soon to be wherever you find your podcasts. Check out our show notes for more information on this week's episode, our social links, and more. Until next time, stay shook. Hey, do you have a personal paranormal encounter that you'd like to share with us? Visit our website, shookpodcast.com, to fill out our contact form. Or you can send us an email at shookparanormalpod at gmail.com.